Peter's two epistles are written to scattered and suffering saints. In his first epistle, he sought to encourage them amidst suffering and slander from the pagans. In his second epistle, Peter writes to warn them about false teachers who seek to deceive and destroy them. In this final chapter of his last recorded written word, Peter gives us his last will and testament. A few final exhortations given the growing danger of false teachers. First, in 2 Peter 3, 1-7, Peter exhorted us to be mindful of the scriptures and the scoffers. Second, in 2 Peter 3, 8-13, Peter exhorted us to be not ignorant about the doctrines of God and the end times. Now in 2 Peter 3, 14-16, Peter exhorts us to be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness and to be diligent in handling the scriptures. As we begin, we're going to look at verses 14 to 15, part A, at the theme of being diligent to grow in holiness and godliness. And then in the second part of verse 15, into verse 16, we're going to look at being diligent in handling the scriptures. So to begin, believers must be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. For a third time, Peter addresses his readers as beloved. Beloved, agapetas, has a twofold meaning. First, it's derived from the term agapao, meaning sacrificially seeking the highest good of someone else with no expectation of anything in return. Second, the term is used to express fatherly love. The term beloved is a favorite term of Peter, who uses the term in both of his epistles for his readers. His use of this term recalls his conversation with Jesus after the resurrection. John 21, verse 15 to 17. So when they had finished breakfast... Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. See, in John 21, Jesus confronted Peter after his threefold sin of denial. Three times Jesus asks Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds each time with, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. However, what is lost in translation is that Jesus referred to sacrificial love, agapao, while Peter responded with brotherly love, phileo. Peter's confession here is that he did not yet love the Lord to the degree that Jesus wanted. Nonetheless, Jesus recommissions Peter to care for his sheep. Thirty years later, and Peter's love for Jesus has transformed into agapao, love. And now Peter uses the verb 
agapetos, to express that sacrificial fatherly love for his readers. He is now a shepherd who cares for Jesus' sheep. Now the phrase here, since you look for these things, refers to the day of the Lord and the day of God, previously mentioned in verses 8 to 13. The verb look here, podaskeo, is the same as in verse 12. And it refers to waiting for something with eager anticipation. That is, we are to eagerly await God's promises regarding Christ's return and the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Are you looking forward to that? Are you eagerly awaiting Christ's return and the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? Now God's promises regarding Christ's return and the new heavens and new earth is to be an encouragement to us to grow in holiness and godliness. And so I ask, are you growing in holiness and godliness? In light of these promises, Peter exhorts us to be diligent. And the verb be diligent, spadazo, means to make every effort to accomplish something. It is to undertake a task with excitement eagerness, and earnestness. Peter first used the verb be diligent in 2 Peter 1.5 when he exhorted us to make every effort to pursue the Christian virtues of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. In 2 Peter 1.10, Peter again used the verb be diligent in admonishing us to make every effort to prove or verify the truthfulness of our salvation. And now in 2 Peter 3.14, Peter exhorts us to be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness. Peter exhorts us to make every effort to grow in holiness and godliness so that we may be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. The verb be found, hurisco, is a judicial term for God's judgment. 1 Corinthians 4.2. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found or judged trustworthy. 1 Peter 1.7. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found or judged to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation or the return of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5.4. Then I began to weep because no one was found or judged worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now Peter previously used this term found back in verse 10 in regard to the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment occurs in conjunction with the renovation of the heavens and earth with fire. This judgment is only for unbelievers who are judged according to their works and sentenced to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, 
and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Nonetheless, Peter states that God will judge believers. The judgment of believers occurs at the rapture and is known as the judgment seat of Christ. See, at the rapture, all of us, all believers, both living and dead, from the day of Pentecost forward, will be caught up into heaven by Jesus. But before entering into the presence of God, all of us, all believers, will have our stewardship or work judged by Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Those diligently growing in holiness and godliness will be found by him in peace at the rapture. Peace refers to having a harmonious relationship with God. Peace is a gift that God bestows upon the saved due to being justified by faith. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. However, having peace or a harmonious relationship with God is not only understanding and responding to the gospel. When we sin, we disrupt the peace or harmonious relationship which we have with God. When this peace is disrupted, we must confess our sins. So to restore this peace, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all our sin. So peace with God requires regularly living out the gospel. And living out the gospel is growing in holiness and godliness. Growing in holiness and godliness demonstrates that we have peace with God. And failure to grow is symptomatic of a larger problem, a lack of salvation. See, my friends, if you do not see progressive growth in your life, growth in godliness and holiness, then you need to re-examine your life and determine if your profession of faith was genuine. Now in this phrase, be found by him in peace, the by him refers to Christ. Christ asked in Luke 18, 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find, hurisco, faith on the earth? In this question, the verb find is the same as found, hurisco, in 2 Peter 3.14. Hence, there is a judgment of faith when Christ comes for his bride, the church. At the rapture, true believers, that is, those who have grown in holiness and godliness, will be found or judged by Christ to be in peace with God. Because they have peace with God, they have faith, as we saw in Romans 5.1. Those who make every effort to grow in holiness and godliness not only demonstrate that they have peace with God, but, Peter says, 
they will be spotless and blameless. The term spotless and blameless are synonyms that describe something as being free of moral defect. The term spotless means to be unsoiled, and blameless means unspoiled. The phrase spotless and blameless, or unsoiled and unspoiled, is an Old Testament metaphor denoting the purity of a sacrificial animal. Exodus twenty, or excuse me, Exodus twelve five. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Leviticus twenty two nineteen and twenty. For you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. For it will not be accepted for you. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter stated that Christ was a lamb, unblemished and spotless, who redeemed humanity through his sacrifice. Uniquely, Peter used this phrase, or the, excuse me, used this phrase's negated form when referring to the false teachers as stains and blemishes in 2 Peter 2.13. That we are spotless and blameless means that we follow Christ's example of being unsoiled and unspoiled by sin. Honestly, though, no believer in this life is unsoiled or unspoiled by sin. Indeed, we are sinners saved by grace. However, we ought to be striving to be spotless and blameless. Striving to be spotless and blameless requires that we what? Be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness. See, in this life, we who strive to be spotless and blameless, we who strive to grow in holiness and godliness, can rest assured that when Christ comes for us, He will make us spotless and blameless in His Father's presence. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 so that he may establish your heart without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. And let me say this, that to underscore the importance of why we must be diligent in growing in holiness and godliness, Peter reminds us to regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. This reminder is a state is a restatement of 2 Peter 3:9. The Lord is patient to you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The verb regard here, regard the patience of our Lord, means to think or consider something. That is, we must think about the Lord's purpose in delaying Christ's return, which is the salvation of the lost. Since God has delayed Christ's return to provide sinners the opportunity to repent, then it stands to reason that we ought to be engaged in proclaiming the gospel of repentance to the lost while there is time. But the gospel of repentance is to be proclaimed not only with our lips, but with our life a life of holiness and godliness. As Peter admonished his readers in 1 Peter 1.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, 
so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We need to be diligent in growing in holiness and godliness. Now, as Peter has previously demonstrated throughout his epistles, false teachers attacked the teachings of holiness and godliness. Such teaching hindered their libertine lifestyle and repudiated their licentiousness. And therefore, Peter has exhorted us to be diligent in growing in holiness and godliness. Also under attack from the false teachers is the scriptures, particularly the proper understanding and application of the text. Hence, we must be diligent in handling the scriptures. Again, chapter 3, verse 15, part B, and 16. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking to them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Notice here that Peter begins by referring to the Apostle Paul, and that he refers to him as our beloved brother. The term beloved, agapetas, a familiar term in Peter's epistles, underscores Peter's sacrificial love for Paul. And that he calls Paul his brother, his Adelphos, demonstrates that Peter viewed Paul as a fellow sibling in God's family. But the importance of this term, beloved brother, is better understood when we consider the mutual history of Peter and Paul. Three years after his conversion, Paul met with Peter for the first time and spent 15 days with him. Galatians 1.18 Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him for 15 days. Fourteen years later, they meet again at the Jerusalem Council. Galatians 2.1 After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Galatians 2.1 and sometime after the council, Peter visited Paul at Antioch, Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. See, while in Antioch, Peter ate with Gentile believers until certain men from Jerusalem came to Antioch. Upon their arrival, Peter separated himself from the Gentiles. And as a leader, many followed him, including Barnabas. Galatians 2.13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. You see, leaders, you have got to watch what you do because people will follow you in what you do. Angered, Paul confronts Peter and rebuked him as a hypocrite. Galatians 2.14. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas Peter in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Now, both Peter and Paul were apostles by divine appointment. Nonetheless, apostles are not free from sin and do not get a pass when they sin. It is striking, though, that neither Paul nor Peter held a grudge against or contempt for the other. 
Paul continued to view Peter as the apostle to the Jews and a pillar of the church. Galatians 2, 8, and 9. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now as seen here in 2 Peter 3.15, Peter calls Paul his beloved brother. And it's refreshing to see that believers, yes, even leaders, can have differences and even call out one another on their mistakes and still be friends and co-laborers in ministry. Peter states that just as also Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things. Just as Kathos refers to directly to Peter's statement regarding God's patience and the sinner's repentance. Paul had made a corollary statement in Romans 2.4. Or do you think lately of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The these things refers back to what Peter has just written about the day of the Lord and the day of God. Paul often wrote about the events of the end times. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves know full well that when the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. 2 Thessalonians 2.2 That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now Peter clarifies that, when Paul, that what Paul wrote was written according to the wisdom given him. And that verb given, didomai, is a divine passive, emphasizing that this wisdom was not a natural ability. Instead, this wisdom is a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. The gift of wisdom also known as the word of wisdom, was a temporary gift with a revelatory purpose. That is, the use of the gift was connected with the revelation of Scripture. Specifically, the word of wisdom is a spiritual utterance at a given moment through the Spirit, supernaturally disclosing the mind, purpose, and way of God. See, the Holy Spirit's disclosure of divine revelation to Paul came through the word of wisdom. And Peter emphasizes the divine inspiration of Paul's writings because the antinomian Gnostics were taking his epistle and twisting their meanings. Note as well that Peter states that Paul wrote to you, that is to Peter's readers. Based on 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter's readers were second generation Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, obviously, that some of Peter's readers were in Galatia, he may have been referencing Paul's letter to the Galatians. However, Galatians was penned in A.D. 49, and Peter is writing this letter sometime between A.D. 65 and 68. This is not to say that they had not read Paul's letter to the Galatians or any of his other epistles. However, Peter's statement to you implies that Paul had penned a specific letter 
to these second-generation Jewish believers who had been scattered abroad. And the only epistle which would fit the audience, i.e. second-generation Jewish believers, the date, A.D. 66, and the authorship, Paul, would be the epistles to the Hebrews. Now, not only was Paul's statement about God's patience and the sinner's repentance inspired, but Peter states, as also in all his letters, the phrase all his letters implies that the church had a collection of Pauline epistles viewed as divinely inspired. Later in verse 16, Peter states that the false teachers distort Paul's epistles and the rest of Scripture. The term Scripture was a common designation in the first century A.D. Judaism for those books considered canonical or divinely inspired. Clement of Rome considered Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians to be inspired. In his letter to the Corinthians, he states, quote, Take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached? Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. Paul himself acknowledged that his writings were from God. 1 Corinthians 2.10 For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.37 If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. 2 Corinthians 13.3 Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. And 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this reason we are constantly th thanking God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Though inspired, Peter states that Paul in Paul's epistles are some things hard to understand. Now the term hard to understand denotes something that requires mental effort or discipline to comprehend. Interestingly, the Greeks used the same term, dos na etas, for the oracles or prophecy they received from their supposed gods. These oracles were often ambiguous and therefore difficult to understand. In the case of Scripture, particularly Paul's epistles, some portions are challenging to interpret. And it should come as no surprise that some portions of Scripture are difficult to interpret. They are, after all, the divine revelation of the infinite God. And as such, finite creatures struggle to, to grasp the message and meaning of certain scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. However, we should not presume that the scriptures are ambiguous and cannot be understood or interpreted. Instead, it means that it requires diligent study for believers to interpret scripture. As Paul admonished Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, accurately handling the word of God. Paul uses the same term translated diligent as Peter. And the verb accurately handling, orthotameo, means to cut a straight line and was used among the leather, carpentry, and masonry trades to denote accuracy or precision. That is, my friends, we are to make every effort 
with excitement, eagerness, and earnestness to precisely and accurately interpret all the Scripture. Can you say that that's what you're doing? Do you take the time to make every effort to precisely and accurately interpret all the Scripture? See, the antinomian Gnostics took advantage of these difficult passages and used them as an opportunity to distort or change the meaning of Paul's writings. The term distort is derived from a term used for torture devices which stretch and twist its victims. And so it has been stated that as torturers make a victim on the rack, say the opposite of the truth, so the false teachers place scripture on the rack and distort its message. Now one of the passages that false teachers twisted was Paul's teaching on freedom from the law's curse. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ set us free, therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The false teachers claimed that Paul was teaching that we were set free from God's law and were no longer obliged to obey it. Now there are two significant problems with this heresy. First, from what did Christ free us? Believers, we are free from the law of sin and death, not the law of God. Romans 8.2 For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is the law of God that wars against the law of sin and death. Romans 7, 22 to 23 and 25. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So that on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So in the context of Galatians 5.1, Jesus did not set believers free from the law of God, but rather the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse of the law of God is death. Christ redeemed us from the curse of God's law by paying the penalty for sin. Romans 4.25 He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. It is not the law of God that we are no longer under, but the law of sin and death. You see, when an individual comes to repentance and faith, the law of the Spirit of Christ, i.e. grace, sets the person free from sin's bondage and death's grip. Romans 6, 7, 9, and 11. For he who has died is free from sin, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.2 For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. By teaching that Christians are free from the obligations of God's law, antinomian Gnostics take the biblical teaching that God's law does not save to an unbiblical conclusion. See, while God's law is not a means of salvation, we're still obligated to obey it as a rule of life. 
1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. But by removing God's law, these false teachers and their antinomianism has resulted in spiritual anarchy. And such anarchy rears its head in the idea that you can live a life of sin and still be forgiven. As R.C. Sproul points out, the song of the antinomianism, or the antinomian, is this. Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. Sadly, in reality, antinomianism has produced an entire generation of professing Christians who are still dead in their sin. As Sinclair Ferguson states in The Whole Christ, the wholesale removal of the law seems to provide a refuge for the antinomian. But the problem is not the law, but the heart that remains unchanged. Peter describes the false teachers who distort the scriptures as untaught and unstable. That these two terms share one article, i.e. the Granville Sharp Rule, implies that these two terms describe the same people. The term untaught means that false teachers are uneducated, unlearned, and incompetent to interpret Scripture. And being unstable describes them as lacking any doctrinal foundation or substance. These false teachers distort Paul's epistles and the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. And God has repeatedly warned against adding to, changing, or taking away from the Scripture. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Deuteronomy 13.32 Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to nor take away from it. Proverbs 30 verse 6 Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. As Peter has previously stated, their destruction is eternal torment in the lake of fire. Believers must be diligent in handling the Word of God. Peter exhorts us to be diligent to grow in holiness and godliness and to be diligent in handling the Scriptures. We have been given, my friends, two tools for growth in holiness and godliness, the Old and the New Testament. In those two Testaments, God has provided us the means by which we can know His purposes and plans for our lives. And because the scriptures are the tools for growth, we must be diligent in handling the scriptures properly. Now there are several ways in which one can mishandle or twist the scriptures. First, first, the scripture is mishandled by interpreting it according to our bias. My friends, bias is a frequent and fatal source of exegetical error. Second, the scripture is mishandled when we spiritualize or allegorize the text to make it mean something that it does not mean. The exact sense of scripture can only be deduced 
according to the grammatical construction, historical context, and cultural setting of the text. Third, the scriptures mishandled when the text is applied to situations where the text does not apply. Scripture must be interpreted only according to its ordinary meaning in its original context. Fifth, Scripture is mishandled when the text is interpreted according to the cultures and customs of our day. Scripture can only be interpreted according to the views and morals of the age in which the various books were written. And finally, the Scriptures are mishandled when one text of Scripture is isolated from the rest of Scripture. Every passage of Scripture must be interpreted according to the overall tone and teaching of the whole Bible. It's of utmost importance that we be diligent, that we make every effort with eagerness, with earnestness to handle, to rightly divide, to cut straight, to precisely and accurately interpret the Scriptures. Let us pray. Our Father God in heaven, we thank and praise you, Lord, for another opportunity to open your word and to study it. And Father, as we come to this challenge to be diligent, Lord, I pray that we would examine our lives. That Father, if there's someone examining and, and making an evaluation that they see no progressive growth in holiness or godliness, that Lord, they may go back and to their profession and determine whether it was real or false. And Father, if they determine it to be false, then may today be the day of salvation. And Father God, if we should go back and see that there's insufficient growth in holiness and godliness. Lord, perhaps it's because we're sinning. Perhaps there's some sin in our life. And Lord, can we invoke 1 John 1, 9. May we confess our sins and forsake them so that you can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that, Lord, we can have peace. Father, when Christ returns, he's looking for faith. He's looking to see those who have peace with him. Sadly, there will be but few that he'll find. And Father, I pray that as we strive to grow in holiness and godliness, as we take your word and, and study it and apply it to our lives, that, Lord, we would handle it correctly. We would di be diligent to interpret it correctly. Father, there's so much nonsense and garbage out there. Christians claiming this and that based on what they think the Bible says. And yet, Father, when it's placed under the spotlight of biblical hermeneutics, biblical interpretation... It is nothing but ash that blows away. Father, I pray that we would be people of the book who are determined to know and to teach and to live out precisely what this book says. Help us to that end. We pray in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.